You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome everyone out in podcast land to Teller from Jerusalem. At Herzl's funeral in Vienna, over 6,000 gathered to honor the man they called the King of the Jews. In 1949, the government of Israel honored Herzl's request and brought his remains to be buried on a small, on a tall hilltop in Jerusalem. I'll talk more about that hilltop later on in this episode. Herzl, as Rabbi Beryl Wine points out, was an assimilated individual who never appreciated the depths of loyalty to Israel and to Jerusalem that fueled Zionism of his Eastern European colleagues. To him, Zionism was not a religious concept but a pragmatic approach to the problem of Jewish suffering. Therefore, Uganda was as acceptable as a Jewish home. He was committed to the Jewish state, but he was not committed to the Jewish home. His Zionistic opponents, all of whom came from a background of a traditional Jewish life in Eastern Europe, viewed Zionism exclusively in terms of the land of Israel. They were not even moderately interested in the prospect of a Jewish state anywhere else in the world. Rabbi Wine also points out this was the very same reason why the so-called home for the Jews in the far eastern Russia, known as Birobajan, also failed. I understand Rabbi Wine's reasoning, but both ideas were not exactly similar. But first, let me explain to you, for those not familiar, all about Birobajan. It is a fascinating and extremely tragic story. The Soviets have an unparalleled ability to create fiction that can be as realistic as the truth. All of the fantasy makers in Disney could never match the Soviets, the Soviet policymakers. Trust me, I'm not being cynical. I'm accurately reporting history. The dramatic Soviet authorities had two pressing problems and decided to solve them, to resolve them, even though neither of them would be achieved by simultaneously one fell swoop resolving both issues. The example that comes to mind, and admittedly, <laughs> admittedly, my mind does not work the same as other minds, is that two of the primary problems of sub-Saharan Africa are access to clean water and rampant crime. So let's say the government of Cameroon and Ghana decide to build a major penitentiary in one of their swamps. This will not solve nor relieve in any way either problem but a cynical government could point to the fact that they're addressing the pressing issues. All right, I hope the analogy is understood. The Soviet Union had millions of Jews, and just like they were despised under the days of the Tsars, nothing had changed under communism and surely not under Stalin. The Soviet Union had territory in the Far East that was contested by the Chinese. We're talking about a territory that is tens of thousands of miles removed from any other Jewish inhabitation. And because of the harshness of the climate, it's not even well inhabited by non-Jews in that region. But just to be sure, the Soviet authorities sent a commission of inquiry to Birabajan in the late 1920s to investigate if the area was suitable for inhabitation. Because the region was replete with swamps and rocks, both making agriculture an impossibility, reports stated that the region was not, I stress, not suitable. Despite this report, the Soviets, undeterred by reality, decided to go ahead with their plan of establishing an autonomous Jewish region in an unsuitable 
area ex exceptionally removed from civilization. Because communism removed all wealth, thus anyone who had previously possessed some kind of money were now impoverished, and these Jews saw the emigration to Birbizhan as an opportunity to eke out of their squalor as the government promised to give them if they would move to Birbizhan. Housing, cattle, plenty of tools, and all they would need to have a productive agricultural life in a region unsuited to agriculture. They left that part out. Upon their arrival, they discovered that the promises were false. So whoever could afford to, left. The remainder had no recourse but to make the best of it. They got involved in a collective farm that was financed by American Argentinian Jews, and remarkably, some communist diehards from America and Argentina moved to Birabajan. This is like the story my friend Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky told me in the name of his father. And the context of the story is very interesting and humorous, but not pertinent to our discussion. But the story goes like this. There were two communist diehards living in New York, and they're always reminiscing about how great life would be in good old Father Russia. And as true devoted communists, they decided they're going to go on ascent up to Father Russia. And so they were planning who would go first, and they concluded that one of them will go for the other one, and ja, 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 just in case there is some truth to the anti-Soviet propaganda, if what he writes, the first one to go back to Russia, the letter he writes is written in black ink, then everything that it says is true. However, if it's written in red ink, disregard what it says, and it's false. So one of them leaves, he departs with fanfare and fanfare and aid, and of course lots of vodka, they send them off to Russia. And a few weeks later, the other communists, waiting to hear how wonderful things are in good old, uh, good old Russia, gets a letter from his friend who writes, Dear comrade, my apartment is so spacious, I cannot see from one end to the other. I can't even succeed in counting how many rooms I have. There's no way of counting. I don't know enough arithmetic to count how many bathrooms I have. I own a fleet of cars. Caviar is the staple for breakfast. And all of my cultural pursuits have been expanded and are encouraged. Comrade, life in the Soviet Union is even better than we had imagined. P.S. I could not find any red ink. So in 1934, the area of Birabajan officially became known as the Jewish Autonomous Oblast. Oblast means an administrative region in the Soviet Union. And Jews actually were allowed to practice their Yiddish culture and speak Yiddish without being persecuted. Historically, Birabajan, or the Jewish Autonomous Oblast, could be considered the first Jewish state as it was founded 14 years prior to the State of Israel. However, yeah, 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 yeah. the idea that it was actually autonomous was as honest as everything else that the Soviets created. As honest as Pravda, which, mean, which actually means true. For Moscow exclusively was in charge. There was no autonomy in that region. The Jewish intellectual elite in Birabajan fared no differently than did their co-religionists throughout the Soviet Union and were exiled to the Gulag or executed in the Great Purge. Under this repression, the Jewish intellectual elite was decimated and Yiddish culture was abolished. Dreams of a homeland where Yiddish culture could be practiced was now a nightmare, and the only thought of the remaining Jews was exclusively survival. 
after World War II, Jews from Belarus and Ukraine that had managed to survive by the survive the war by fleeing east were not allowed to return to their homes by the Belarus and Ukrainian authorities as their own homes had been taken over by ethnic Belarusian and Ukrainians. In an act typical of Russia's quote-unquote magnanimous concern, the Jews were invited slash ordered to move to Birabajan. But it was still not home free for these Jews, as the last years of Stalin's life were devoted to anti-Jewish measures. The Jewish anti-fascist committee who fought against the Nazis were tried and executed. Then there was also the infamous doctor's plot, and any prominent Jew in Birabajan was arrested and charged with crimes against the state, and they were imprisoned for very, very long sentences. Yiddish and Jewish books were forbidden. All Jewish books were collected and burned in public. My, this sounds historically familiar. After the public book burnings, any Yiddish culture went underground. People were afraid to speak Yiddish in public and even in their homes. Stalin died in 1953, and with his death came an end to the repression of Yiddish culture, but it would never flourish again. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, most of the Jewish inhabitants of the autonomous oblast, approximately 20,000, moved to Israel. Today, the autonomous Jewish autonomous oblast is 1% Jewish, and they are elderly, impoverished Jews that are victims of a very harsh region, oppressively difficult winter, and their lives are just bereft of any comfort. To basically surmise this footnote to Rabbi Wine regarding Birabajan, it was created to relocate Jews from their native areas of the Ukraine, Belarus, and Crimea. But this, their settlement, the settlement of these Jews in these areas was very much resisted by the non-Jewish population. The placement of the Jews in Birabajan was meant to serve as a buffer to dissuade any Chinese or Japanese expansion. So they were moved all the way across, across the world, basically, a trans world. And the fact that it was communist and under the nose of Stalin, who wished to destroy everything Jewish, it never had a chance from the outset. Its failure was guaranteed. I once saw a picture in a booklet entitled The Happy Jews of Birabajan, and 35 years later, I'm still haunted by this picture. It looks like it was really taken in the Buchenwald concentration camp circa 1944. Herzl was never in Jerusalem. He requested to be buried where he died and then be brought to Israel when it will be established. Here's the direct quote. I will leave it to the Jewish people to bring my bones to the Jewish state. And there is nothing written on the tombstone of, of, of Herzl because it's supposed that everyone would know who he is. It's... Uh, to me, a little bit awkward that there's nothing written. All famous people, I mean, if you look at the, the graves of presidents, for example, Harry Truman, James K. Polk, James Buchanan, or other just famous people, Francis Scott Fitzgerald, Jerry Falwell, or other, back to other presidents, JFK, LBJ, John Glenn, Leonard Nimoy, everybody has something written on them. And, but it was just assumed that they'd write on his tombstone four letters, in Hebrew, hey, Reish Tzadi Lamed Herzl. Not even a first name, not even the dates with the famous dash in the middle, if you're familiar with that poignant poem, the dash poem. But there is wisdom to making a simple tomb so you speak about the person, not the architecture of the mausoleum. There are many antiseptic and sterile tour guides who will pass over the meaning of a structure and focus on the architecture. I've overheard tour guides in Poland, for example, 
focus on the architecture and the mode of design of a synagogue and not say a word about the poor Jews who gathered every day to pour out their hearts and sanctify the synagogue. Herzl died on July 3rd, 1904. He's buried on the mount called Mount Herzl. Uh, really, there are no mountains in Israel, but it is a relatively tall. The only mountain in Israel is Har Hermon, Mount Hermon in the, in the Golan. And there is a common Israeli expression called Ben Shalmitus, which is obviously a translation from English, but I've never found, and I look pretty significantly, the English original. What it means is being the son of a myth. It is very difficult to be the child of a legend or a celebrity, living in a glass bowl when all are watching you. Before I will tell you painfully and with deep regret what happened to Herzl's family, we have to acknowledge that this is a known phenomenon and expecting the child of a great person to be equally great is unrealistic and a cause for deep disappointment. I suspect we are all familiar with children of celebrities who gave their parents a bad name and whose behavior reflects poorly on their parents. I know that Golda Meir's two children, aside from coming from a dysfunctional family, resented that their mother was gone for months at a time, even though later in life they were proud of her. I never heard of this son and his sister and the other daughter being a great source of pride to the Meir family. Or perhaps a better example. John and Abigail Adams were not only America's first power couple and romantics of a famous love affair, but they were also parents of John Quincy Adams, also the President of the United States, a feat for Abigail seconded only by Barbara Bush. But one of their children, Charles Adams, drunk himself to death. Likewise, Andrew Johnson's son drunk himself to death before the age of 30. And a personal story, thank God not a personal story, not about myself, I could not be prouder of my children, but a gentleman that I know in Jerusalem who is a God-fearing and outstanding human being who built up an admirable business only for his son who succeeded him to bring it to bankruptcy, causing the loss of many people, trusting people, including myself. The father suffered terribly from this embarrassment and said at least he, he hopes that the shame will clear his path away from Gehenna. And there's no reason for me to unspool the list of celebrities whose offspring were profound disappointments, as Teller from Jerusalem is anything but a gossip column, albeit all of this is common knowledge, but I wish to set the background for the Herzl family was the quintessential Ben Shalmitus, the son of the myth sacrifice, because of all the disappointments, suicide has got to be the worst of all. Buried in the corner, aside from Herzl, are some remainders of his family. Herzl was married to a Jewish woman named Julie, and they had a very rocky marriage. Some say that he was actually in France, that means Herzl was in France, not because of the Dreyfus affair, but he had left his wife four years earlier and went to France, but she did join him later, as a matter of fact. On the very same street where Herzl lived in Vienna also lived Dr. Freud, and she was under his treatment or perhaps a student of Freud. Julie Herzl died in France and was cremated, and her son, and Herzl's son as well, Hans, left his mother's ashes on a train and he forgot to earn there. Oh my gosh. Pauline, Herzl's oldest daughter, suffered from illness. She was a drug addict, and she went searching for morphine in Bordeaux, southwest France. She died in 1930 childless and alone. Hans, 
the son of the Herzls, did not even have a brismila circumcision. That's how assimilated the family was. He became a Baptist, then a Quaker. He was baptized as a Catholic in 1924 and then returned to Reform Judaism. He went to visit his sister Pauline after he learned that she had died in Bordeaux, and two days later he committed suicide with a bullet to his head. He too died without any progeny. Herzl's youngest daughter, Trudy, eventually married and had a son named Stefan. She was mentally unstable and had repeated bouts of depression. She was murdered in the concentration camp Theresienstadt during the Holocaust. The Herzl children were not Zionists, and they never traveled to Palestine. The parents despised each other, and so the children were raised by a governess and strangers. Trudy's only son, Herzl's grandson, was an officer in the British Army and jumped off a bridge committing suicide. Thus, Herzl has no surviving relatives, although his invaluable contribution is expressed, perhaps, by the number of Israeli boys named Herzl, Herzl being their first name. So there's not that much of the family left to bury uh, next to him, not to mention his wife's remains were left on that train of all, all, in, all indignified things. The Zionist movement established a large trust fund on behalf of the Herzl family. Not wishing to endanger the investment, the Herzls bypassed the trust funds of their own Zionist movement, such as the Jewish National Fund and Karen Hayasod, and invested the money in bonds of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and within a decade, they would be worthless. Now, Herzl is buried on Mount Herzl, and this is known in Israel as Chalkat Gudaleha Omar, the cemetery of the greatest of the nation, what would be the equivalent of the national, national pantheon. I think this deserves some explanation, and albeit it's well known that I'm a tour guide, a docent in Yad Vashem, it's not so well known that I also guide in Har Herzl, which is the Arlington National Cemetery of Israel, if you will. Why is the Chalkat Gudalei HaOmah, the National Pantheon in Jerusalem? The answer is that on the 29th of November 1947, the United Nations agreed to, partition, to a partition plan for the Jews and Arabs, and Jerusalem would become international. Therefore, the theory was that Jerusalem should not be the capital, for it was not Israel proper. So where should the Pantheon be. Ben-Gurion felt that the capital should be in the Negev, the Pantheon should be in the Negev, the southern arid region, for that was in accord with his vision. Goldemir felt that it should be in Haifa, for that's the capital, and it's a, the entrance to the country. Others felt Herzliya on the Mediterranean coast would be the preferred location. The most logical place was Tel Aviv, but because of the 90,000 Arabs living in neighboring Jaffa, adjacent to Tel Aviv, that was not practical. With the outbreak of the War of Independence in 1948, it became very clear that Jerusalem would not be an entirely international city. But part of the city will be Jewish, and therefore a lot was done to strengthen the Jewish presence in Jerusalem. Until the presidency of Donald Trump, Jerusalem was not even accepted as the capital of the Jewish state to America, and it has yet to be accepted by many other countries. Weizmann, the first president of Israel, was sworn in in Jerusalem, and then the Knesset was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Part of the effort to strengthen the Jewish presence in Jerusalem was to make the Pantheon explicitly in Jerusalem. They started searching for a location that would be suitable in what would be the country's capital. They thought that it should be in Givat Ram, 
But because on that neighborhood would be also the Knesset, the parliament, and Hebrew University, it was considered inappropriate to also have the Pantheon located there. Because Har Herzl, Mount Herzl, and we've already said that it's, there really aren't mountains in Israel, but it is a tall height, uh, the idea was from there you could see Givatram, indeed the entire country. The idea was to make an Aliyah Regal, a national pilgrimage to the state's founders. Now that sounds grandiose to the extent that their leadership qualities did not seem to encompass modesty. And from Mount Herzl to be able to have a panoramic view of the entire country. The idea was flawed in many ways, not the least of which there was no trees at the time on Mount Herzl. Now, because of the trees, you cannot see anything from atop of Mount Herzl. So who qualifies for the Gdolehu Umad, the leaders of the nation? This creates quite a dilemma. In Paris, the Pantheon is not according to the job or position, but a committee selects the person according to his accomplishments, and they transfer the bones some 20 or 30 years later to the Pantheon. The deceased buried wherever he wishes, and decades later, the committee, with the perspective of time, makes their selection. This would not work in Israel. Hence, they decided only the prime minister, presidents, head of the Knesset, substitute prime ministers, and the chairman of the Histarut HaTzionit, the World Zionist Organization. Factually, that's not always the case, but in Israel, and it's no secret, protection works. Protection means connections and also the theory of kacha, creating new facts. In the last decade of Herzl's life, he gave the Jewish people the hope of going home. To actually build a state would require brave pioneers, but Herzl was, as historian Eliezer ben Yehuda says in that beautiful CBN film, quoting the song, The Wind Beneath Their Wings. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.